The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, April the 27th, 2020. As we start... A new week and we go through what we are going through. I hope that you are finding something to hold on to in these times. And I ask, what is it that gets you through each day? What is it that you look to that gets you through every day? Of this pandemic. Whatever that might be for you. I hope that it is working. And I hope that it is paying off for you. We are all going through this. Together. But we are going through it. Differently. Together. Elton John with Sacrifice. And that's what this episode is going to be about. Sacrifice. 
as we go through this pandemic. And as I said, we are going through this together, but we are going through it differently. Each of us is going through this pandemic very, very differently, according to our experiences in life, according to our station in life, according to our racial group, according to gender, according to where we're situated, according to whether we are rich or poor, according to whether we have a job or don't have a job, and and all those things in between. We are going through a pandemic, and we are all going through it together, but we are experiencing it very differently, whether it's due to our health outcomes, whether it's due to systemic racism, whether it's due to all kinds of different things. Poverty, structuralized and uh, institutionalized poverty as well. I mean, there's so many different things. So really the focus is sacrifice and confidence and what we are going to be able to have to do and what we are doing to have a sense of confidence. Can we have that in a society that does have all of this structural racism and structuralized poverty? Can, can we possibly have any confidence of getting through this pandemic when you have such a lack of what I think is a lack of sacrifice. Now, and I just played Elton John and he's talking in that song about the kinds of things that people go through in relationships and a a love lost or a love gained, you know, the idea of trying to keep love together in a relationship and trying to weather a storm, the anatomy of a breakup. And it's a great song. And I'm a big Elton John fan. What I'm really getting to today, though, is something a bit different in terms of sacrifice, in terms of the kinds of things that the United States is or is not doing. And I think it can be epitomized in some of the things that certainly are happening with these openings of some of the states in this country, in the U.S. of A., You've got situations where governors are reopening some of these states. In Georgia today, for example, you have Governor Kemp opening movie theaters. And it is not known whether or not the movie theaters that are being reopened are enforcing physical distancing or not. I mean, we don't know that. And... We don't know whether the small businesses, these small movie theaters, the mom and pop movie theaters, the independent ones are doing it. If there are any in Georgia, I'm sure there are a few that are still uh, alive that haven't been eaten up by these large chains. Uh, We don't know whether AMC or any of these other, these big chain companies are doing that. Uh, it's It's a reckless reckless situation. I think the only kind of sacrifice that's being done in those situations, if you're opening up a state's movie theaters, a state that has its movie theater, that has movie theaters in it, is you're sacrificing people's lives. You're asking people pretty much to die. And most of those people are going to be poor. Most of those people are going to be black. Most of those people are going to be Native American. Most of those people are going to be the Latinx community. So I do lament 
these decisions. And I can only tell people in Georgia, in South Carolina, in any other state to stay home if you have a home to stay in. If you have a home to stay in that doesn't have a domestic violence abuser in it. So, I mean, that's what I say when I say, and that's what I mean when I say that people are experiencing this pandemic differently. We're going through it together, but we are experiencing it differently. I would say, please avoid movie theaters in Georgia, please, or any other place where these things are happening and these theaters are opening. Please stay out of movie theaters. You've got, if you've got Netflix, if you've got Hulu, if you've got any of these streaming platforms that you are able to access if you have internet access, because lots of people don't. But if you happen to, please stay at home and watch. It's much safer than going to a movie theater when anybody can come in and sit anywhere near you that's not six feet away from you. I think that most people understand this. I think that most people have it. And I get it. And I think that most people do understand it. And I think, quite frankly, um, that there's a lot of noise being made by a small minority of people who are very loud and very vocal. But when the news media, I think, covers them, it makes people, the average viewer, think that, that there are many, many, many millions of people who are in favor of this. And it's not true. It's just not true. There are vocal numbers of people in various states, but the media's repetitive focus on them makes people think that that there's this large clamoring movement when in fact there is not. But the notion of sacrifice is something that I think this country is not doing enough of. If you study the last goodness knows how many years of American history. Sacrifice has been something that has been done in World War II, the repeated talk of the greatest generation, the sacrifices made during the Great Depression, the Republican Great Depression of the 1920s and into the 1930s, where you had a quarter of the American workforce lost You had sacrifices being done during those times. And you had sacrifices being done in some very critical moments in this country, whether it was the human rights movement of the 1960s with Dr. King and various many other people who died trying to get the right to vote for black people to be able to vote without any kind of obstruction or hindrance or penalty. Many, many people died in those fights in the 1960s. You had Rosa Parks, who sacrificed a great deal in her time as she was spearheading the Montgomery bus boycotts of the 1950s, 1955. And for two years, it was over a year, almost two years, it it was the Montgomery bus boycott. It might have been even three years. And so black people in Montgomery and across the state would not would not go on the buses in Montgomery, would not go in, on, on any of these buses. And the bus companies in Montgomery felt that economic pain because 
black people mobilized in in Alabama, in Montgomery particularly, and said, we're not taking your transportation. You're not going to allow us to sit wherever we want to, wherever we choose to on a bus. Well, we're not going to sit in your buses at all. We're not going to patronize them. We're not going to sit at the back of the bus anymore. We've had it with this. And you would have people making these tremendous sacrifices. We had other people doing the same thing. We've had sacrifices throughout the American experiment. We've had military families. And according to a website called dosomething.org, and by the way, they have a register to vote portal on there as well. There are military spouses and military families who have sacrificed so much throughout the years in this country. And people really don't see them. People really don't hear about them. The media doesn't cover them as much as they do these loud protesters who are clamoring to reopen society. That is something that is very noteworthy. According to do something.org, there are so many facts that military families, this is around 2014 or 15, these numbers, military families relocate 10 times more often than civilian families on average every two or three years. Since 2001, more than 2 million American children have had a parent deployed at least once. More than 900,000 children have experienced the deployment of one or both parents multiple times. Children in military families experience high rates of mental health, trauma, and related problems. About 30% reported feeling sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks during the past 12 months. Nearly one in four reported having considered ending their lives. Multiple and prolonged deployment also has an effect on spouses, with 36.6% of women having at least one mental health diagnosis compared to 30% of women whose husbands were not deployed. Bereavement experts report that for each active duty military loss, an average of 10 people are significantly impacted. In the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, an estimated 68,360 family members have been significantly impacted. What some of those figures I have just read out from the dosomething.org website indicate is something fairly clear and obvious to me. And that is that there are a small group of people doing these sacrifices on a daily basis. And just think, now in the wake of this pandemic, we now have these military families going through even more stress. And these individuals are rarely seen. These individuals are rarely given the attention and the spotlight that their sacrifice, I think, demands. We have people who sacrifice every day in this country who are working three and four jobs. 
That is a sacrificing individual who is sacrificing their whole lives, basically, by working their entire... I mean, people are working for 20 hours a day, 18 hours a day, doing two, doing three jobs to put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads. Those individuals are not being given the coverage anymore and quite frankly really haven't been quite often. There is a sacrifice that is going on in this country where there are the average family who is sacrificing, who is, if they're poor, certainly are doing the sacrificing. Those who stand in long lines to vote who do so for six, seven, eight, ten, twelve hours, sacrificing pay because they have hourly jobs and they are not salaried employees. And they are making lots of sacrifices. But what about people who are defying stay-at-home orders, whether it's here in some parts of California, whether it is in other states, who are going out, thousands of them going out, to beaches, to parks. What about, where's their sacrifice? We have a growing rate and a growing number of people every day who die due to COVID-19. Where is the sacrifice that those individuals who are out and about on Huntington Beach, in Huntington Beach or anywhere else in the country. Where is their sacrifice? You've got military families struggling. You've got the average person who's working two or three jobs before this pandemic and now have been laid off from all three jobs or have been furloughed or have not been able to get unemployment benefits because the state unemployment hotlines are completely to capacity or the websites crash. And this is happening across the United States. What does that family do next? What are they supposed to do if they've got a family of three, a family of four, and they are the only breadwinner in that family? And they were working two three, or even four jobs, something that George W. Bush once called uniquely American. Well, he was right about that. And what does that do to people? Well, it does the things that cause the anxiety, that it does cause anxiety, it does bring up your stress, bring up your blood pressure causes all of these kinds of chemical things to go on because the body is trying to handle all of these things. But for those people out there, and they are still a, a number that's less than 20%, I think, where is your sacrifice? Where is that can-do spirit that we had in this country? Rosie the Riveter in World War II encouraging women to support the effort, the war effort, by getting in and doing manufacturing jobs and, and working to make the country stronger and make the country fortified. But we don't have that can-do spirit now among a great number of people, it seems, in some areas of the country, 
in terms of fighting a war against this virus. And I get it, while Trump and the rest of his cronies in the administration that he really is now um, rubber stamping a dictatorship on, they aren't doing anything. They're not telling you to sacrifice anything except your life. They're telling you, or I should say, Captain Lysol is telling you to drink bleach, to inject disinfectant into yourself. That is a kind of sacrifice that he is talking about. What I am asking is if you are listening to this, do you wear a mask? Do you wear gloves? Do you wipe down your groceries with soap and water or some kind of alcohol-based wipes? Do you make sure that your surfaces are clean? Those are small sacrifices inside your home if you are fortunate enough to have a roof over your head. But what about the day-to-day? How are you getting through all of this? And do you know people who are sacrificing? And do you know people who are not sacrificing? There are lots of people who are sacrificing. But there are also 20% or so who aren't. You may know them. You may see them around you in your neighborhood. This isn't about snitching or telling tales or ratting somebody out. What I think this is about is a lack of decency in some people and a selfishness in some people. And I think that it's imperative now that we emphasize compassion and care. And a key criteria, I think, is respecting each other and caring enough about each other so that we do make those very small sacrifices compared to some of the individuals that I've mentioned, some of the groups of people, the military families, the poor, the working poor in this country, those who stand on long lines in black and brown communities predominantly to vote in this country, standing in lines in Wisconsin earlier this month, for heaven's sake, amid this pandemic to vote, which is a real crime that they are being forced to do that by the Republican legislature and Wisconsin Republican-controlled Supreme Court, which is why we must have early voting and we must have vote by mail. There is a lack of sacrifice, though, for all of those individuals that I've mentioned. There are still, I think, a lot of people in the United States who are not sacrificing anything at all. And I want to talk a little bit more about this, and we'll do so in just a few moments.
Simone with Baltimore. It is hard just to live. It is hard just to live for many, many people on this planet. And people are despairing. People are hurting. And I want to offer something as a contrast because there are people who are going through tough times all over this planet. And this is something I I wish that the United States had done, that a competent government had done. And I think a competent government perhaps might have done this, not the one that's in office now. Donald Trump is never someone who exhibited competence. He wanted to destroy things, and it was a willful Incompetence. It was a willful destruction. What you're seeing now, again, is 40, 50 years of this progression amongst Republicans and some neoliberalist Democrats to bring us to the point that we have got to now. And this is what's going on, by the way, in New Zealand. This is from Bloomberg Opinion. This is from the uh, couple of days ago now. And a journalist is writing about his son who lives in New Zealand and what his son has said to him about what New Zealand is doing. And I'm going to just read portions of this and I'm going to compare what's happening in New Zealand right now to what is happening here in the United States. For those of you who don't live in the United States and who may not know about what's going on here. But for those of you who do live in the United States, consider this from New Zealand. This is what the writer writes. And you can find this in Bloomberg Opinion. It was literally April the 24th or 25th of 2020 that this was written. So you can find it easily. New Zealanders are only allowed to drive locally and for essential activities. They are encouraged to restrict outdoor exercise to an hour a day. At the pharmacy, only one customer is allowed in at a time and clerks retrieve the goods from shelves and put it in a bag so customers never touch anything until they return home. Now, that doesn't happen here in the United States. Workers are supposed to wear, must wear masks and gloves in New Zealand. Now that does not happen always here. There's still problems with grocery stores not getting gloves, not having gloves, not having their workers wear gloves. You have heard me talk in previous episodes about nurses who are being told you have to work. 
without your mask, without a mask, and you can't bring one from home. If you do, you lose your job. I've talked about that. One nurse in in New Jersey, southern New Jersey, lost her job and is now in the process of trying to get her job back because the hospital that she works at told her, no, you can't protect yourself. You can't bring a mask from home. And because you've done that, you have to figure out whether you want a job here or whether you want to hold on to your life. And she decided, my life is more important than my job. You've got nurses in Santa Monica, California, who were suspended because they refused to work without a mask when treating COVID-19 patients. And they were suspended. Now in New Zealand, food processing companies still operate, but virtually every other form of blue collar work is shut down. Citizens are surviving financially with emergency funds from the government. The country has been successful enough in its efforts that it is relaxing some of its restrictions on Monday. By the way, in a country, New Zealand, of just 4.8 million people, do you know how many deaths there are? 17. 17 deaths in a country of 4.8 million people. And that in my view, is because people in New Zealand have sacrificed and are doing it collectively now. And we don't have shared sacrifice in the United States. What we have in the United States is people who are selfishly calling freedom, freedom, freedom. But freedom for them does not mean anything to do with sacrifice. Freedom for them is I want to go out and do what I want. It's a very selfish-based idea. Freedom to go out whenever I want. Freedom to go out and do what I want. Freedom to go wherever I want. That's not really freedom. That's selfishness. That's not freedom. That is something very different. It's self-indulgence. Yeah, that's what I think freedom is for them. Some of these folks that you're hearing about who are getting all this oxygen from the media with their protests, while most of the country disagrees with them, I don't know why the media continues to show people that the vast majority of the rest of the country do not agree with and don't support. And I would wish that the corporate news media would actually deal with all those people who don't support reopening states. That's what I think should happen. But of course, that is not happening. So you've got what's happening in New Zealand with this shared sense of sacrifice, where everybody's staying at home, everybody's staying behind closed doors. The companies who are open, the few of them who are open, are being very strict, only one person in at a time. Here in the United States, of course, even at Trader Joe's, which I think has done a very good job with establishing physical distancing guidelines. you They're letting 50 people into a store at once or 25 people into a store at once. So it's a big, big difference. Yes, and I know America is a vastly bigger country. The US of A is bigger than New Zealand, of course. There are 328 million people here. But that's really not the point. 
it has less to do with population, I think, and more to do with attitude, with the approach of governments and what leaders are doing, like the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. And what Jacinda Ardern is doing is leading with policies that are clear and defined and precise. She's not offering the mixed messaging and the mixed messages that you are getting in various state governments, like in Georgia, like here in California to a degree, and in numerous places where they're telling you, well, safe distancing and enforce uh, physical distancing, but yet they are opening places up. Or there are stay-at-home orders. Well, you know, Georgia, you have a stay-at-home order. We have it still going on in some of these cities and these in these states for a couple of weeks more, but we're going to open up things. And so this Bloomberg Opinion article does contrast this. 700,000, 700 workers at a pork plant in South Dakota at a Smithfield pork plant have been infected. Dozens of other U.S. meat packing plants have high rates of infection. And this is according to a USA Today investigation that this opinion article in Bloomberg cites. The Boeing company has shut down for a month, is now calling back 27,000 workers to its Puget Sound facility in Washington, even though the state's stay-at-home order will remain in place for at least two more weeks. As of early this month, 135 Boeing workers had tested positive for the virus. And there's, there's, this is going on all over the country. Bloomberg News reports that only 86 of the 10,509 defense industry sites, the Pentagon sites, have closed down because of the virus. General Dynamics owns the Bath Ironworks, which is a naval shipbuilder in Maine. The union had asked the company in early April to shut down the company, to shut down this shipbuilder. One worker had tested positive for COVID-19. The company says it can't do so because the U.S. Navy is insisting that it stays open. That's the contrast between New Zealand and the United States of America. It's a huge contrast. What I'm going to do now is play a couple of excerpts or a few excerpts from a speech that many of you may not be familiar with, that you may not remember or you've just never heard it before. Now, the speech, when it was given, was given... Well, years back, it was given and it lasted for around 34 minutes or so. And it was given during the summer. And I wonder if you can guess who gave it. I wonder if you can guess. Well, this person, by the way, is still alive. I wonder if you can figure out. Who gave this speech and you will be able to hear this now you will know who it is I'm sure 
in just a few moments. I'm going to be playing a few segments of this speech. Gradually, you've heard more and more about what the government thinks or what the government should be doing and less and less about our nation's hopes, our dreams and our vision of the future. Ten days ago, I had planned to speak to you again about a very important subject, energy. For the fifth time, I would have described the urgency of the problem and laid out a series of legislative recommendations to the Congress. But as I was preparing to speak, I began to ask myself the same question that I now know has been troubling many of you. Why have we not been able to get together as a nation to resolve our serious energy problem? It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even than inflation or recession. So I want to speak to you first tonight about a subject even more serious than energy or inflation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. And I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. Our progress has been part of a living history of America, even the world. We always believed that we were part of a great movement of humanity itself called democracy, involved in the search for freedom. And that belief has always strengthened us in our purpose. But just as we're losing our confidence in the future, we're also beginning to close the door on our past. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. 
for the first time in the history of our country, a majority of our people believe that the next five years will be worse than the past five years. Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, back in July of 1979, July the 15th, 1979, to be precise. That speech is almost 41 years old. The speech was called A Crisis in Confidence, and it was given during prime time. News stations interrupted their programming to bring this speech, and it was from the Oval Office. It's the kind of speech that you don't hear American presidents give anymore, at least not as sharply and acerbically as that. Jimmy Carter is still with us. Jimmy Carter is someone who I think now is doing even better work than he did when he was president. And there are certainly things during his presidency that didn't go well that he probably could have done better or dealt with better. We know that he has been involved with building homes. He is into his 90s now. And despite some health issues along the way, he is still with us. He is rebounding from them and is someone who continues to be a very important figure in the United States. A former president who still has the leadership credentials and leads by doing. That speech does not get played very often. And I'm going to play a second portion of that speech that also addresses some of what I've said in this episode and in others. I think we do have a crisis of confidence. And I think that part of the reason we do is because we have a crisis in leadership. And we are seeing that obviously in the White House with Donald Trump because he doesn't inspire leadership and because he's not a leader. So that when we're going through this pandemic, we have all of these kinds of self-indulgent things that he says. And as the President Jimmy Carter said there, we are a country that is awash in consumerism, in consumption. And Amazon has highlighted that and pushed that. And we have Apple and we have all these companies and there is trend lines out of this. There's advertisements about being a hip consumer. Here's my new iPhone. Here's my new Alexa. Here's my new whatever. And ads are now made out of stylizing consumerism. First, it was the product that was being advertised. Now it's about, and it still has been, it's been like this for a while. Oh, I'm a better person because I have this product. I mean, that's been going on for many years. But even now you're seeing a more hyper-stylization of marketing the person because they are so much better off with this iPhone or with this bit of technology. I think what's interesting is that in this state, California, for example, you've got tech companies, Silicon Valley out here, the world's leading tech leaders, the world's prominent people, the Tim Cooks of the world and all these other people. You've got Mark Zuckerberg out here. 
and yet you've got a state unemployment system and infrastructure, for example, that is on antiquated software, on antiquated systemic platforms. And you've got these stories in the Los Angeles Times of people not being able to get through to the unemployment agency here. And their technology is so old, apparently, according to this article. Well, if that's the case, what on earth are people, the leaders in Silicon Valley, doing about this? When Gavin, Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom here in California, talks about public-private partnership, is there a public-private partnership from companies like Apple and Google and Facebook with the state government here? to actually better the infrastructure of these unemployment places, for example, or whatever it might be? What about investing money in doing that? Have there been conversations about that? All of this technological innovation is all well and good for iPhones. But if you're someone in California or anywhere else in the country and you're unemployed because of this crisis or because you've just been laid off for some other reasons and you can't even get through to your local to your state unemployment line because of the crush of people trying to get through and your infrastructure in these uh, these uh, systems is antiquated well why don't the leaders in Silicon Valley if they haven't already had conversations about this with governors, why don't they get together and actually provide funding and ideas in partnership with the state governments to actually change the infrastructure and um, improve it? Isn't that a sacrifice, a small one that they could make? Since you've got a guy in the White House who does not want to bring the Defense Production Act in in a widespread way. What about having these companies like Apple and Google invest in infrastructure improvement in these state facilities and these systems like the unemployment departments of these states? I think that would be a really good idea. Instead of constantly pushing your own product or besides doing that, how about reserving some money and some capital and some ideas and putting them into improving the infrastructure, not just of unemployment lines, but of all of these things in these states. I think it would make a whole lot of sense. When I return, I'm going to play another portion of the crisis of confidence speech from Jimmy Carter, President Carter in 1979. And I do agree with him. I think we do have a crisis of confidence. I think those words are still applicable today. And I think that crisis is deeper than ever before. Looking for a way out of this crisis, our people have turned to the federal government and found it isolated from the mainstream of our nation's life. 
Washington, D.C. has become an island. The gap between our citizens and our government has never been so wide. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers, clear leadership, not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. What you see too often in Washington and elsewhere around the country is a system of government that seems incapable of action. You see a Congress twisted and pulled in every direction by hundreds of well-financed and powerful special interests. You see every extreme position defended to the last vote, almost to the last breath, by one unyielding group or another. You often see a balanced and a fair approach that demands sacrifice, a little sacrifice from everyone, abandoned like an orphan, without support and without friends. Often you see paralysis and stagnation and drift. You don't like it, and neither do I. What can we do? First of all, we must face the truth, and then we can change our course. We simply must have faith in each other, faith in our ability to govern ourselves, and faith in the future of this nation. Restoring that faith and that confidence to America is now the most important task we face. It is a true challenge of this generation of Americans. Our fathers and mothers were strong men and women who shaped a new society during the Great Depression, who fought world wars, and who carved out a new charter of peace for the world. We ourselves are the same Americans who just 10 years ago put a man on the moon we are the generation that dedicated our society to the pursuit of human rights and equality. And we are the generation that will win the war on the energy problem. And in that process, rebuild the unity and confidence of America. We are at a turning point in our history. There are two paths to choose. One is a path I've warned about tonight, the path that leads to fragmentation and self-interest. Down that road lies a mistaken idea of freedom, the right to grasp for ourselves some advantage over others. That path would be one of constant conflict between narrow interest, ending in chaos and immobility. It is a certain route to failure. All the traditions of our past, all the lessons of our heritage, all the promises of our future point to another path. The path of common purpose and the restoration of American values. That path leads to true freedom for our nation and ourselves. That is President Jimmy Carter on July the 15th, 1979. In an excerpt from his speech, A Crisis of Confidence. And it was a speech that got roundly criticized by lots of people in the media as the, it became known as the Debbie Downer speech. 
oh, it was so dour and... Well, he said that it was not a message of happiness and it was not meant to reassure, but it is the truth. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that this is the kind of language I think the American public in particular needs to hear. And I think that we have coddled people. And when I say coddled, I mean, you know, in regarding to extending these orders, why not just tell the American public to sacrifice? And there are governors all over the country who are doing that. And President Carter there talked about what I talked about, which is this freedom, this selfish notion of freedom and freedom being the right to grab and grasp as much as you want, to go out and do what you want, to go out and not wear a mask, to infect as many people as you want without regard to safety of others, if not yourself. Sacrifice is needed, I think, for all of us. We need to do this. When so many people have lost their lives, it seems really crude and sociopathic, quite frankly, for people in many cases just to go out and walk around and be in groups of people in clusters, completely oblivious, not caring about the fact that we've lost and sacrificed so many lives. And that's what happens when a country is not being asked in concrete, clear, blunt ways like that of President Carter. When a country is not asked to sacrifice en masse, when only small populations of the country or poor populations of the country or black and brown populations of the country are sacrificing and doing so quietly every day and getting very little attention, whether it is now the people who are getting attention, healthcare workers who are now dying whether it is the grocery store worker who doesn't have adequate protection, face masks and other PPE, whether it is the bus driver, some of whom are dying. I mean, this is what Jimmy Carter talked about. And that's what he was referring to. I do encourage you to watch that speech and I'm going to link to it in this podcast episode notes so that you can watch that in its entirety. And hopefully you can use it as a reference point to think about some of these things as you go through your own sacrifices. I want to, at some point in future episodes, talk more about this on a, a deeper level that is much more micro. But I think that President Carter, back in 1979, laid this out very well. And I do hope that you are able in your own ways to do what you can to help you, your family and your loved ones be more safe in a very unsafe place right now in this world we live in. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat.